Father, it is a joy and a privilege to come into the house of the Lord to celebrate your great goodness with your people. And I pray that our singing this morning has been done with a unified voice. Unified because we have been reconciled to each other through Jesus Christ our Lord. And a people who are delighted to come together to sing your praises because we understand We know that you alone are worthy of our praise and our adoration. Father, you are the creator of the universe. and By your mighty hand, we are sustained this morning. We were able to get up out of bed and put on clothes and breathe fresh air and take food in and enjoy the fellowship already of your people because you are a good and faithful God. And we celebrate your goodness to us. You are worthy of. To be praised. And I pray this morning that our praise that we offer to you will be an acceptable praise. May it be a sweet smelling aroma to you this morning. And Father, as we live out our lives, especially today in these troubled times, in the, uh, in the midst of a complex world, in a, in a time when men fear for the future, fear tomorrow... We have an unusual faith and an unusual hope. We are at peace this morning as your people because we know that you are in control. You are the sovereign God of the universe. And so we commit ourselves again this morning to your care. And yet, Father, we ask that you lead us in all things that we do. May the way that we live tomorrow, may it be a just representation of your mercy and grace to a lost world. We pray, Father, for our nation. We pray that you will lead us through these difficult days. Lead our president and his uh, cabinet that he has surrounded around him, his military advisors. Father, may we act justly as a people. Lord, in the coming days, if war does come, we pray that you will keep, uh, Father, all of our servicemen safe from harm. And we pray that your will will be done. Father, this morning as we come, we gather here in anticipation of this wonderful sacrament that you've left us, the Lord's Supper. And in it and through it, we are reminded of your grace to us. We are reminded, Father, that you are not just our God and creator, but you are indeed our Father. And you place your arms around us in warm embrace. And so we celebrate your grace today. We pray, Father, that you will take these offerings that we're about to to give and use them to advance the kingdom of heaven. Father, we give joyfully, we give liberally because you have been so good to us. Finally, Father, I pray for the preacher of the hour that you will speak through him the words of truth today for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3. Taking you back to Ephesians 3, we were the last time I preached, we were there in that third chapter of this great epistle. And this morning, if you've noticed, the sermon title is The Mystery Revealed. I guess I should have uh, entitled the sermon The Mystery Revealed Part 2. Or I hope to finish up this section here in Ephesians chapter 3. This is part 2, then, of The Mystery Revealed. We'll begin reading Ephesians 3, verses 1, and we'll read through, our text will take us through verse 13. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... 
Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men and other generations as as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. Um, Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of truth. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Again, I've taken you back to this third chapter of the book of Ephesians to kind of summarize, uh, first of all, some of the things we discussed the last time we were here. And then uh, to take a few minutes and discuss two additional points I want to point out in in this section. I was thinking this week about the Apostle Paul and his, uh, the way that he lays out this third chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I mentioned to you when we were here last that what he does here is he begins the second of two prayers in this great epistle. He begins, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he pauses, and there is this long parenthesis, almost 12 or 13 verses, before he actually continues with the prayer in verse 14 and 15. For this reason, you see in verse 14, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derive its names. I pray that out of, out of his goodness. So he actually finishes the prayer, but before he does, he goes back and summarizes again these, the great message that he has already presented to us in the first two chapters of this epistle. As I was thinking about the Apostle Paul this week, I was thinking... I wonder how Paul, what kind of worshiper Paul would be if he had the opportunity to worship with us this morning. Even in our congregational praise, how would Paul sing? How would his demeanor be? We know that before Paul was converted, he was a very passionate man. In fact, he had spent most of his life defending the cause of Judaism. We know from the book of Acts that Paul lived out his, uh, these days before his conversion seeking out Christians to arrest them and imprison them because they spoke against the God of Israel. They introduced Christ as God himself. And so we know Paul was a passionate man in whatever he did. We know that after his conversion, almost immediately after his conversion, the scripture says that Paul began to preach that Jesus is the Christ. So I I can almost guarantee you this morning that Paul's passion would be evident among us as he worships the great God of grace through Jesus Christ. A song came to my mind this week, a song that 
I sang growing up in the Baptist church. Maybe some of you might remember this hymn. Marvelous grace of our living Lord, our loving Lord. It goes like this. Wonderful and matchless grace of Jesus. Deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Higher than the mountain. Sparkling like a fountain. All sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgression. Greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. I think, guys, the reason that song came to my mind this week, because I believe that's what Paul had on his mind as he begins this second prayer. The marvelous grace of Jesus. Can you imagine it? That Jesus, the Son of God, would come to this earth and die for our sins. He would die for my sins As black as I am, Jesus would give his life up for me. And God, as holy as he is, would reconcile me to himself. And Paul has this on his mind as he begins this second prayer. And he reminisces a bit of God's glorious grace. And he takes us back to what he's already taught us in the first chapter of Ephesians. That is, in eternity past, that God put Christ and us together in his mind. Who can understand that? We can only scratch the surface that we have been joined together in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, Paul teaches us that because of Christ's reconciling work, that we have been brought together as fellow citizens, Jew and Gentile, men and women who were strangers, who were once far away from each other and far away from the cross of Christ, have been brought near. We are now fellow citizens, a part of a new nation. Then in chapter 2, he goes on to describe us as members of God's household. And this is important. We'll see it again this morning. That we are a family brought together in covenant relationship. And then in chapter 2 again, he says that we are a dwelling place. Ladies and gentlemen, we are a temple in which God lives by his spirit. And then as we come to chapter 3 here, he introduces a word that's unique to Paul in the New Testament. It's this word, mystery. And we touched on this the last time we preached out of Ephesians 3. This issue that God has created, this new nation, a new race, a new people. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's a great mystery. Now, guys, again, we define this word not as we define it it in the modern-day English. It doesn't mean something that's unknown or mysterious like, where is Osama bin Laden? It's not that kind of mystery. But in the Greek world, the term mystery was defined as something known only to the initiated. That is, Paul understood that only those who had been reconciled to God through Christ, only those who have been brought or born into this new family could understand what this mystery is all about. And now we come to this section here in chapter 3 where Paul, for the second time, uses the word gospel. Look at, look at this again in verses 6 through 9. He says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel. This is where I want to begin this morning. Here are the two points that I want to share with you before we take the communion this morning. One is this. First of all, you cannot separate the church from the gospel. 
And secondly, we'll see in our text this morning that you cannot separate the church from Christian living. First of all, you cannot separate the church from the gospel. A couple of rainy weekends ago, Carl and I watched a couple of movies together at home. One of them was on regular television. It was um, the, the movie The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. I know you've probably seen that. I, I've seen it several times, but I like the first 30 minutes of that movie. I like the train wreck. That's one of the, I think, one of the best train wrecks Hollywood's ever reproduced. And then the other movie that we watched, we rented this movie. Somebody, one of you recommended that we watch this movie. So we rented My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And I hope I don't offend anybody but the, because the title is almost offensive. But it's a, it really is a good, funny movie. If you like a lot of laughs, you ought to rent this movie. It's a good family movie. But what these two movies had in common were that they both ha- were filmed in part in, the, in and around the city of Chicago. And while we were watching the, one of those movies, Carla made the, the point that, hey, haven't we been on that street? That street looks familiar. And we had. It was Michigan Avenue. We've been to Chicago several times. We love the city. And in fact, uh, just down that street on Michigan Avenue, in, in go, if you go south on Michigan Avenue, I think it would be going south. There's a city park there that um, each year is the beginning and the ending of the Chicago Marathon. And. I've run, ran the Chicago Marathon in 1999 with my son Brian, and uh, we ran it. That was the year that the Kenyan set the world record in the Chicago Marathon. We were there. We ran it with the Kenyan. And uh, if, you, if you run that marathon, you'll, go through several, you'll run through several sections of the city of Chicago. Now, in the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, you might remember, if you've watched the movie, that the patriarch of this Greek family, the father, is constantly reminding the children of their rich Greek heritage. In fact, one of the things that he does is say that, uh, reminds the children that all English words have their derivative in the Greek language. And there is some truth to that. A lot of our words come out of the Greek language. You know, in fact, the word marathon has a Greek connection. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I can connect, at least indirectly, I can make a connection between the word marathon and the word gospel. The word marathon, you you may know this if you know a little bit about history. It, It was actually a place. It was a town. And in 490 B.C., a Greek soldier ran from the town of Marathon to the city of Athens to bring news that the Greeks had defeated the Persians in battle. And that distance from the town of Marathon to the city of Athens was about 25 miles. And so the modern-day Marathon is a little over 26 miles. That's another story in and of itself. But the point is that these runners would run these great distances to bring news of the battle. And it was common in ancient history For this to happen, in fact, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that even Israel practiced this. Often the armies of Israel would go out into the distant fields and plains to engage their enemies in battle. And there were runners assigned to the armies and the runners would leave the battle and run great distances back to the cities, the fortified cities, to bring news of how the battle was progressing. And in these fortified cities, there were watchmen assigned on the towers of the city to look over the horizon and wait for the runners as they approached. And it said 
that the very best watchmen could tell what kind of news the runners were bringing by the very way that the runner ran. Prophet Isaiah alludes to this in Isaiah 52, where he says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And if you look at Isaiah 52 and place it into context, you know that the prophet Isaiah is speaking in prophetic terms. He goes on to say, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Now, I want you to turn quickly to Romans chapter 10 because I want to show you something here. This idea, this concept of good news is picked up in the New Testament. And here in Romans chapter 10, Paul uses this very, in fact, he quotes the Old Testament uh, when he speaks of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Romans 10, and you know this passage, verse 13, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, I don't know what version you have, but some of our other versions actually use the word gospel. Now, here's my point in all of this illustration, guys, or this, uh, this uh, introduction. The Greek word for good news or gospel is the Greek, is the word evangelia. The English word, of course, is the word gospel, and it means good news. So if you're ever asked, what does it mean to be evangelical? You have the answer before you right here. Occasionally people ask me, what, what, is this, what is your church about? What does it mean that your church is Grace Evangelical Church? Well, here's the answer. And I often tell people this. Well, it means that we are a gospel people. We are committed to the gospel. By extension, to be evangelical means that we are a people devoted to the gospel. By the way, guys, we are devoted to the full gospel. That is, we believe that Christ not only died and rose to redeem us, but Christ died and rose to reconcile us to himself. And he died and rose to adopt us as his own. He, has, he died and rose to adopt us into his family. Now, what this means, this full gospel means, is that you and I, it's true that, that our salvation is, is an individual or a personal thing. But it's also true that our salvation is a corporate issue. You see, guys, we have been adopted into the family of God. So the Father doesn't simply buy our freedom or pay our debt. The Father buys our freedom and then he takes us home with him. We are brought into the family, the covenant family of God. And that's what Paul means or meant when he said in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus. And in verses 8 and 9, Paul picks up this whole theme, guys. Listen in verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. 
Now, Paul is living his life by example before the church. Paul understands that his calling as a Christian is to be a minister of this good news. And so it is with us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be ministers of the good news of the gospel. Now, here's how one commentator illustrated this, which helped me a whole lot as I brought this, as I bring this whole point to to conclusion here. He, he shared it this way, that, is that, it, that the church is like a prism. You know what a prism is? It's, it, it, it's a prism is a, as a refractor of light. You can take even a, a, a glass of water can act as a prism. And as white light is passed through the prism, on the other side it breaks through with, in a multifaceted or multicolored fashion. And this commentator said that the church is like a prism. We stand between the grace of God that is being communicated to the world and the church is that refractor of light. And we receive the grace of God. And as it's passed onto the world, it becomes this multicolored, multifaceted grace of God. And the world is stunned by the church, by the very way we live. And I showed you the last time we we're here in this passage is that I was very fascinated with this uh, section here, verse 10, where he says his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers. That is the angels, the authorities in heavenly realms. And I, the illustration I use is uh, the, the sanctuary was like a great stage and we are the church and the church are the we are the actors on this stage acting out this point in history and the angels were in the balconies looking down upon the church as we act out this grace of God and I said that the angels praises are enhanced as they see the church in action because the church becomes the manifold wisdom of God it's as if the angels are saying that was his plan that's how God has decided to solve this human dilemma the sin of the human race and the estrangement of his people. He's done it through grace. And he has brought us together in reconciling grace. The angels' praises are enhanced as they see us live out history. But not only that, the world around us, as they watch us as the church, they are drawn to the grace of God because we act as this great prism of God's grace. So the first issue here is you cannot separate the church from the gospel. Guys, in conclusion here, I want to say that what we do with the gospel as the church becomes for us the ultimate issue of stewardship. And secondly, you cannot separate the church from the Christian life or from Christian living. Look, look in verses 12 and 13. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore... Not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, guys, let me give you a little hint here that will help you as you read through the epistles. Anytime you see the word therefore, pay attention. This little conjunction is very important. Almost always when you see this conjunction in the epistles, it alerts you to the fact that preceding the word therefore is usually great doctrine. And then following the conjunction, you'll find application to the doctrine. And that's the case here. 
in verses 12 and 13 of Ephesians 3. Paul has just stated great doctrine and he's now about to lay out for us the application of this doctrine. Now, here's the doctrine. Verse 12. In him, that is in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. This is phenomenal. This has a tremendous impact on us as human beings. Paul is saying that in Christ and through faith in Christ, we may approach God. The doctrine is this. We have access to God. We who were once far away have been brought near to God. Now, this is reminiscent of the prophet Jeremiah, where he says he prophesies as he reviews the covenant that God says to us, I will be your God and you will be my people. Last year, some of us were reading together Dwight Edwards book, Revolution Within. And I remembered a statement Dwight Edwards made in that book. It was a I thought a profound statement. I went back and looked it up and sure enough, I had highlighted this statement he had made. Dwight Edwards says in his book, Revolution Within, it requires God to know God. Do you get that? It requires God to know God. What he is telling us, ladies and gentlemen, is that without God's initiative, we would forever remain in darkness. You and I are alive today because God in ages past decided that he would reveal himself to us. Ladies and gentlemen, salvation was God's idea. And we know God because God has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us. And it's with that in mind that Paul brings us to this important conclusion. The ultimate purpose of salvation is to bring us into the presence of God. The ultimate purpose of salvation is to cause us to be worshipers of God. We enjoy God, intimate relationship with God, because God has chosen to redeem us. I remember as a 12-year-old boy some 35 years ago, on a Saturday night, I lay in my bed... And it was this idea that God used, the Holy Spirit of God used to convict me of my own unrighteousness. And this was the issue for me as a 12-year-old boy. Having been raised in a Christian home, surrounded by godly parents and faithful preaching of the gospel and experiencing the covenant community, the thought came to me that night that I could step out into eternity and forever be separated from a God who is a God of love and mercy. Can you imagine the thought of that? Stepping out into eternity, realizing that there is a God, a God of love and mercy, and then to be forever separated from that God. And it was that thought that caused me to get on my knees that night and confess Christ as Lord of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, we have intimate fellowship and intimate relationship with a loving God because he has taken the initiative to reveal himself to us. God is not simply God the creator, but now because of Christ, God is our father and we have intimate fellowship and communion with him. You can't see it, but up here on this pulpit, there's a brass plate 
that the designer and builder of this pulpit was wise enough to include. And it's a reminder to those who would step behind this pulpit and preach the word. It's a reminder that the people, the people need to see Jesus. It says on this plaque, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's a reminder to the preacher that the people need to hear of Jesus because it's through Jesus that we can know the Father. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. How incomprehensible it is to human understanding that God invites us not just to know about him, but to know him firsthand. And then secondly here, our access to God is enjoyed. This great doctrine, this access to God is enjoyed with, Paul says, freedom and confidence. You see it in the second part of verse 12. We approach him with God with freedom And confidence. Let me illustrate this for you this morning. This issue of freedom and confidence. By the way, if you have a different version, it may say access with confidence or freedom from all apprehension. That's the kind of fellowship we enjoy with the Father. Holly and Brian were very young, just children. One day I brought home a gift, a surprise to them. I I, uh, got a puppy and brought it home. And I placed this puppy in a cardboard box. And I got home that evening, I I put it in Holly's room, and I called Brian and Holly into her room. And I said, I got a surprise for you. And we're looking down at the box, and the box was moving a bit because the puppy was moving around. I'll never forget the look on Holly's face as she opened the box, and there down in the box was this little puppy. And they grew to love the puppy. They named her Muffin. Muffin grew up at our house, and um, she was a Backyard dog. We kept her outside in the backyard. And you could pull up in the driveway in the afternoons. And Muffin, it's almost like she knew what time somebody would be coming home. She would be standing there at the, at the gate. And there was a crack in the privacy gate as it joined. A crack where Muffin would turn her head sideways. And she would be looking down the driveway, seeing if it was one of us coming home. And when she saw us pull up in the driveway, Muffin would run all the way around the backyard to the other side of the house where the patio was. And she would climb up on the step of the back door. And we had one of those full view back doors where you could, she could see in. And she would step up on the step and she would sit right there waiting for one of us to come in the house and round the corner there in the dining room. Now, if I came in, if it was me coming home first and I came in around the door and Muffin saw me turn the corner, you know what she would do? She would do this, kind of cow down. And if I stepped out on the patio, she would step back and she would get down, you know, like dogs do and look up in kind of an apprehensive way because I was the only one in the house who would spank Muffin. Muffin would dig up the flowers and I would spank her for it and... So she, that's just, this is how Muffin approached me, with a kind of an apprehension. And she would wait to see my reaction, and if I was in a good mood or not. And if I bent down and scratched her on her belly, then she would jump on me and have fun and play with me, because it was safe. But now if it was Carla that came home first, and if Carla rounded that corner in the dining room and she saw that it was Carla... She would go wild and scratch on the door and jump around on the window. And she couldn't wait for Carla to step outside. And she would almost attack her before she could even step out of the house. She was so glad to see Carla. You know why? Because Carla received her the same way every time. Muffin never had to fear Carla. She was apprehensive to me, but not to Carla. 
You get the point? The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that's how the Father receives us. Paul says we don't have to come to the Father in fear and apprehension that he will not receive us, that he's in a bad mood. He, he's always ready to receive us. Now, let me illustrate it a little bit further. Because this is not all that Paul means by freedom and access. Uh, last night, Brian called and uh, he told us that he's coming home in a couple of, actually the first weekend of April, he's coming home for a visit. And we'll be excited about his arrival. This morning, Holly got on an airplane and she's left the country for a week. She's on a trip. She'll be back this Saturday. Now, I'll tell you something. When Holly returns Saturday and when Brian comes home in a couple of weeks, if I'm upstairs in my office lying on the sofa and I hear him pull up in the driveway, you know what I'll do? I'll bounce down those steps and I'll meet him at the back door and embrace both of them when they come home. And I do that. I've done, I practice that thing for that. For, you can ask uh, Carla and Holly right now. Even at night during the week, if they're out at night, and I hear the garage door come up, and it's Carla or Holly coming home. I ninety percent of the time I get up and go to the back door to embrace them as they come in because I want them to understand that I'm anxiously awaiting for them to come. And that's how the Father is with us, ladies and gentlemen. We don't have to approach Him in fear. We approached him in anticipation that he's ready to receive us. We can be assured that the Father is glad to receive us. And Paul says that this access, this communion we enjoy with the Father can be enjoyed this way. We know that we can come to him in freedom and confidence that he loves us like an earthly father loves his own. That's the doctrine. Now, quickly, I want you to look at the application in verse 13. Here it is. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, look at this carefully, guys. Don't disconnect the application from the doctrine. The word, therefore, means that you have to take verses 12 and 13 together. And Paul says, we know God, an intimate relationship. He is our father. Now, With that on your mind, considering that, don't be discouraged because of life. Don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. It's for your glory. Do you see what Paul is saying here? You know the Father? The Father, if the Father is truly our Father, it should change everything about our lives. It seems that some of the Ephesians were had become discouraged with the reality of Paul's sufferings. And their conclusion was something like this. If we are God's own, if we are his sons and daughters, if we are truly his church, and why should anything like this happen to any of us? It's a good question, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? As we consider everyday life, the question becomes often, why do these certain things happen to us? Well, the only way that we can explain the difficulties in life and the challenges of life is to explain it through this great doctrine that God is ours. He is our Father. Now, I'll remind you, guys, we, we have to remember this. God is consumed with his own glory. And yet, as John Piper says, it's the same God who is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. 
Now let me say that another way. Ladies and gentlemen, God is consumed with his own glory and he is determined to reveal himself to each and every one of us. If you are in Christ, God is going to reveal himself to you. Whatever it takes, he is going to draw you into intimate relationship with him because he knows the better we know him, the more that we will glorify his name. Whatever it takes. And Paul says, you believe this, I think, in Acts 17, he says, as he defends the gospel before the Athenians, Paul says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Guys, can I relate this back to this issue of the church? Paul believed that membership in the church, the body of Christ, this whole issue of this new covenant relationship, this new nation, this new church... Paul believed that it is in this church, in view of the church, that we should, we should rethink our entire lives. We're no longer, guys, simply neighbors. We're no longer simply housewives. We're no longer simply fathers or pilots or doctors or salesmen or police officers or lawyers. We're Christian neighbors. We're Christian housewives. We're Christian fathers. We're Christian pilots. And on and on it goes. We are Christians A part of a new nation, a new people that become the reflections of God's glorious grace to the world. And, guys, the church, the issue of the church should redirect our entire thinking. So the point is this in conclusion. If if the church or if the Christian message is truth, not simply another truth, but if the Christian message is truth, should it not permeate every arena of our lives? Should it not influence how we live tomorrow, how we spend our money, how we work, how we study, how we play, how we view the church? And my challenge to you this morning in closing is this. I challenge you to take a fresh look at the church because you cannot separate the church from Christian living. It was at the center of Paul's life, so much so that Paul says he was willing to suffer for the church. In Acts 20, he says, my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord. The work of telling others the good news of the gospel. Why? Because it's in and through the church that we see the living God. A couple of weeks ago, actually a few days ago, my sister called and she was actually had some bad news and she my, uh, her daughter, my niece, is expecting a child. and It seems that some of the tests they have taken show, showing that the baby may not be normal, that the baby may be born with a disability. And uh, she called to ask us to pray and to seek counsel. And I'm thinking, what do you say? What do you say with issues like this? I, I was remembering that text in John chapter 9. You remember the story... Where Jesus, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees or the disciples brought a blind man to Jesus. Do you remember the story in John 9? And the, the uh, disciples said, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember the Lord's reply? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Oh, that was my counsel to my sister. 
That's the counsel that I need for my own life. And that's the counsel that you need in your life. That God is seeking to reveal himself to us. And that in all things, he might be glorified. Father, we thank you this morning for truth. I thank you, Father, for what Paul has taught us in these passages. That we are indeed a part of a great mystery that's unfolding this very moment before the world. Even before the angels. And we as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ have the opportunity to reflect the manifold wisdom of God. We thank you for this great doctrine we've discovered here that God, you are not simply our creator, but you are indeed our father. And we have direct access to you as our God. And we thank you also that we can enjoy this fellowship with freedom and confidence, knowing that your arms are always open to receive us because our sins have been washed away through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, for this sacrament that reminds us of your glorious grace. And we receive it today humbly and in gratitude for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ.